episode of Between the Bites, tech news and updates. My name's Derek on the marketing team here with Executech. And I'm Gary. We are joined again by our honorary host, honorary host, subject matter expert, James Fair. James, how are you doing today? I'm always excited to be here. Woo-hoo. Thanks, guys, for the invite. All right. Appreciate being back. Honorary host. I like that. That's awesome. I've been up in the world. I put that on my resume now. <laughs> Do it. <laughs> so with this episode, we're going to kick off probably a two-part series that's going to talk about blockchain, cryptocurrency, and maybe a little bit of Web3, explain what's going on there. So a little bit more on the technical side, but it's something that gets tied into a decent amount of the other topics that we've been covering over the past few months. And it sounds like it might even, especially with blockchain, start to come up even more with its potential for cybersecurity. So James, I'll have you start with a brief description of blockchain. All right. No small feat here. I will do my best not to pick on banks. That's not what I'm after here. But let's think of banks as a central ledger. So I store my money in one bank. I go to the second bank and they have no idea how much money I have available in the first bank because the first bank has that information. They have a database of all my transactions and how much money I have saved in there. So blockchain is a public version of that and it can be used privately. So I don't want to get down that rabbit hole too much, but Instead, it's a public version of a ledger. So rather than one person holding on to that and trying to keep that database safe, we give it to everybody. So everybody has a copy of the ledger. So let's say you and I and Gary all share this ledger together. We all write down each other's transactions. So you have an interaction with your bank and we write that down. Gary does it and write that down. And I buy something from Gary, we write that down. And we all have copies of those things going on. So if any one of us were to lose our ledger or attempt to falsify that information, the other two of you could go, yeah, no, it's not what mine shows. So we've moved it to a decentralized version of a ledger where we all have copies of it and can see what's going on. And to further secure it, each transaction has, we call it a hash, a mathematically calculated number that's, let's say we add up all the letters in our previous ledger entry. And we put that as part of our next entry. Each ledger entry then has that mathematical number attached to it from the previous one. So if I were to go back and modify a previous one, we can see that mathematically, especially with computers nowadays, how fast they are, that whoop, something's off. The rest of those are no longer valid. It's very secure that way. And it prevents abuse that way. I think that's probably the best way to put it. Yeah, that's probably a good starting point for the conversation for blockchain. (laughs) Does that sum it up okay? (laughs) Yeah, that gives us a good idea of where to start. What are some of the early uses or some of the largest uses today as far as whether it's industries or specific types of transactions or activities? What are some of the bigger uses that you see where blockchain has really helped out? Well, certainly cryptocurrencies, right? Bitcoin is is built on a blockchain. I don't want to, not sure if we're going to the rabbit hole yet, so I'll wait on that one. Supply chain is also a big part of it. So some larger grocery stores now implement blockchain and can trace down like a purchase of spinach all the way to know to what store it's in and when it was put out on the shelves using blockchain. So it allows for far less likely to have errors when in the supply chain system. So we really see it in supply chain. Is that that big of an issue? There are probably issues where it is more important, but just take the salad one. 
maybe I'm wrong. I'm not in the logistics business or in the grocery business, but I can <laughs> kind of track at least a pallet of salad sure. from origin to what grocery store it ends up on. Now, maybe I can't track which bag ends up on which shelf, and maybe that's what you need, and maybe that's where it's cool, but is there a granularity that's not necessary at that point? Well, so let's assume that you can't. Let's assume once it gets on the truck and unloaded, we don't really know from that point what went where. We know what farms contributed to contribute to the supply that that truck went out to, but after that, eh, we kind of have a rough idea, but not down to a granular level. So if spinach ends up, you know, one batch of spinach from one farm ends up having a bacteria infection that we need to recall with blockchain, we can go back and we can say, yeah, it's at these stores and this. And so we can get very specific about where to recall those. So in that case, I think it would be entirely beneficial to know to that granular level. Okay. Yeah. On my end, I see, especially just when you put it to scale, you know, if you're dealing with thousands of tons of, let's again, just stick with it, produce every year, if your job is to track that produce and try to get as much of it to sell as possible, but you know that things are going to happen, whether certain things get damaged, bruised in shipping or a certain amount doesn't sell in time before it spoils. Without granular tracking, you're dealing with averages and percentages. On average, we lose 3% of all of our shipments to spoiling or damage in transit. If you can stop using those percentages and go with an actual number, once you put that to scale over a year, two years, then that could be a pretty substantial positive for your bottom line and just how you manage all of your produce in this case. So that is pretty interesting. And you may trace it down to say, hey, we've noticed that most of the spoilage comes from this area or this producer, yeah. that kind of thing. So we can go back directly to that in that case. Okay, I'm liking the fruit analogy. Let's, <laughs> let's stick with okay. it. It works. <laughs> and just to reaffirm, to make sure I'm thinking about this correctly, it's the equivalent of you've got your uh, five-pound bag of apples, let's say, and there's a barcode on that apple. If the barcode is turned into a blockchain barcode, I would be able to see each step that that bag of apples took before it and all other bags of apples or just that one. Yeah. All other bags of apples are also contained within that quote unquote barcode. They'd certainly be contained in the ledger. The ledger being an open sort of sort of ledger, anyone can go back and refer to it and see where all of those are. So not necessarily the barcode would, but the ledger contains all that information would be available to all. Yes. I think the question would be, how is that stuff tracked? Is it attached to a barcode? Is it... You know, in this case, if we use blockchain in our produce, yeah. what is the actual tracking mechanism? We would create a database of entries of barcodes. So a bag of fruit or an individual fruit, if we tag them individually, you know, let's assume a, a crate of fruit, whatever granular level you want to get to, each unique code then would go into this database that we're then tracking all transactions as it moves throughout from farm to table. Gotcha. You mentioned at the top that part of the difference is the ledger and who has access to it. You know, in the case of the bank, only the bank sees all the ledger, all the transactions in consequence. The ledger is the sum of all those transactions. Is that a correct way to say it for the bank? Yeah. Well, it's a history of them as well, right? We can go back and see all history, tra historical transactions. But in the case of blockchain, does it matter the amount of people that have access? So as you said in our example, could the three of us constitute a true blockchain or does it need to be more diffused? 
preferably in a decentralized environment like that, you want a lot. Because one of the ways that we prevent security is that every time we do a transaction, it needs to go out and a majority of all of us need to vote and say, yes, we agree that that's a legitimate ledger entry. So in the case of three of us, two of us would have to say, yes, we agree. And then the third person would be out. But if I were able to get a hold of two of those, you know, as an attacker, I could be able to hold two of those ledgers, then I could falsify that information. It'd be difficult, but I could do it. So if we had thousands of us all participating, it'd be much more difficult to get a hold of 500 or 1,000 ledgers to make that modification necessary to be in the majority to make the next ledger entry. Gotcha. Now that being something public like that, is there really any risk or anything that could be done to leverage just having access to the data outside of being able to change anything, obviously, because it would take that majority vote? Is there any kind of other data exfiltration that could be a risk? There are private blockchains. So, you know, what we're kind of talking about are more public blockchains. There are certainly private ones where it's kept internal. Supply chains aren't sticking their information out for everyone to see where I can't go barcode the spinach and see where it came from. But there are a lot of, especially in the cryptocurrency world, the idea is to keep it as open as possible, to involve as many people as possible, which is a very different concept from your centralized banks, as we talked about, where they're keeping that that information private, only they know about it. Now we're opening up to everyone. The idea, at least, was to help reduce security challenges, to help reduce crime as well, right? Because if I can see where all my money went and where all your money went, maybe you're going to be a little more (laughs) forthright about where you're spending your money. Are we ready to dive crypto? Because I have questions about crypto. <laughs> sure. I mean, crypto could be a whole bag of worms because then we could also get into NFTs and all that. But anyway. True. But crypto is, I mean, that's where, you know, kind of started the blockchain revolution. That's yeah, what it's it, inevitably where it's right. going to go. That's what launched it. So let me ask a 101 question before we move into crypto. The term blockchain, why and where did it come from? Gosh, you would ask me that question. Too much of a Wikipedia question there. Yeah, probably. Let's go research that one. But the short answer is that we are creating blocks of entries and each entry is based on the previous one. So we're creating a chain of blocks of entries. As I mentioned, there's that mathematical hash of the previous one that's added into the next one that's added into the next one that's added into the next one. So if any point along that chain, there's an attempt to modify the information It's immediately visible, readily acknowledgeable by computers. So the idea is we're creating a secure chain of blocks that can no longer be modified historically. I can't go back and change my transaction from two years ago because it would invalidate all the blocks after that and it would be readily visible. So it is a chain of blocks that are to some degree immutable. Okay. We're already kind of there. We're one step away from talking about how this applies to finances and specifically cryptocurrency. So take us there, James. What is (laughs) cryptocurrency? I mean, that's the buzzword in and of itself. What is cryptocurrency? What does it have to do with blockchain? So cryptocurrency, we'll take Bitcoin because it's the easiest one and it's the most popular one to talk about, is built on blockchain. It is a digital currency whose ledger is open to all. I can see every transaction from the very first one when someone traded a bunch of Bitcoin for a pizza all the way up to the one just a minute ago. And that's all entirely visible. So I can see all transactions of Bitcoin for all time and eternity on the ledger. And it's publicly available. So anyone can do it, not just me. It's that same 50% rule. So if I make a transaction, if I buy some Bitcoin, then my entry goes out and a bunch of at least 50% of the computers out there have to agree that's a valid ledger entry. It gets entered into the official Bitcoin ledger. So Yeah, it's a digital currency based on blockchain with an open ledger 
not managed by banks. And I don't want to make this about beating up banks, and just but in a fair comparison, now I've got 24-7 access. I'm not relying on hours of the bank. I don't have to go to an ATM. It's accessible from anywhere. I can buy some Bitcoin here. I can go to a different country and my Bitcoin is still on the ledger, on the blockchain, no matter where I go. So it is a, to some degree, a global currency. I think for the first time, we really have a global currency. I'm sure there's some debate in that one, but. Okay. Help me understand this. I've got the 101 questions here. Bear with me. Let's do it. My slow brain here. No, you're good, man. And I'm going to go back to our produce example. Okay. The blockchain is the basically tracking mechanism for the produce. Yeah. But in cryptocurrency, the tracking mechanism is there. You're saying transactions are being logged. You sold this, you bought that. But what is actually being bought and sold? A virtual currency. It's a digital currency. So it sort of sits above the actual block. It's not the blockchain itself. It would be your produce. It would be your oranges or your apples. It is, here we go. (laughs) So yeah, remember the blockchain is just a database. So the blockchain is used to record all transactions of Bitcoin. That's correct. Which is a, in essence, a virtual currency. It's a digital currency. Now, you know, we've had a lot of talk about that being invalid, right? Some famous guy called it the equivalent of being old socks who has then since gone back and (laughs) changed his tune a little bit. But I have this discussion with my father and he had a very difficult time. Like it's virtual, there's nothing real about it. And while that is true, like anything else in the world, its value is based on what people are willing to pay for it, number one, right? So anything in the world, whether it's old socks or cherry pits, it doesn't matter. If If someone wants them and the supply is low, the price will go up. This is, you know, nothing different than that. And in truth, we deal in digital and virtual currencies every day. We transfer money via Venmo. We use an ATM. My bank account is just numbers on a screen. Exactly. Yeah. And we're not in the gold center anymore, right? That ended some time ago where we actually put a dollar's worth of gold into a Fort Knox for a while. So our dollar had a backing to it. That's no longer the case now either. We print money. So some people will still disagree with me on this one, but it is not such a far jump anymore. And I think the younger generations nowadays see that as, yeah, we've transferred money via Venmo and everything else. Why is this any different? It's just digital currency. So its value is what people are willing to pay for it, though. Absolutely. And with the cryptocurrency, Bitcoin, Dogecoin, anything like that, is it difficult, do you think, to find areas that it is acceptable outside of just trading currency for digital currency? If you have a substantial amount of Bitcoin, can you actually do anything with it? Oh, yeah. There are many, many organizations who are accepting Bitcoin for payment. Awesome. I believe even Tesla, you could buy a car with it if you want to. So, yeah. And it's growing pretty rapidly. And even if you do not, even if your organization does not accept Bitcoin, there are now firms that have started up who will handle the cross transaction. You pay them in Bitcoin, they do the conversion and pay the organization off. And a lot of organizations which formerly did not take Bitcoin are now taking Bitcoin in that they're leveraging that third party to do the transition for them into whatever their local currency is. Okay. Let me ask a a question that ties back to many podcasts we've already done in the past. And I know half the answer to this, but help me understand it more fully. Why do criminals, hackers, want payment in Bitcoin? Yeah. Well, it's easier to move, certainly. If I give you $1,000 in cash, it's, you know, it's hard to do. Yeah, I can't send that to a hacker in Russia. Like it's just right, right, right. Send it to FedEx or whatever. What's the wire transfer company? The Union Western Union. 
Western Union. Yeah, right. You know, that that's all very well recorded and, and it's immediate, right? Or nearly immediate. So I can I can send it to you on one side of the world. You can receive it on the, as I said, it's a global currency now. So you can receive it on the other side of the world and then you could immediately pull it out before it could really, someone could do something about it, number one. And that is some of the bad press that Bitcoin gets is that it, it's used heavily by the criminal organization. Now, that is true. Counter to that, I will say that before Bitcoin even existed, they were making plenty of money extorting people just as they are today, right? This is just a, the preferred method of doing so. But all transactions, as I mentioned, are open on the ledger. So we can see every transaction that's ever been made on Bitcoin. We can see if someone moves it into a wallet, we'll know the address of that wallet. And certainly the FBI and other crime-fighting organizations are watching wallets full of Bitcoin that have been used illegally to see where they go, to see what happens with them. Now, unfortunately, unfortunately or fortunately, however you want to look at it, there are privacy coins that have come up. So if I can move some of my Bitcoin into a privacy coin, which doesn't have an open ledger or isn't nearly as traceable, then I can probably start masking some of that money and be able to pull it out without it being 100% traceable. Yeah, that's kind of the short answer. One area that I kind of got an idea of where Bitcoin can actually help out quite a bit for some of the same reasons that criminal organizations would prefer something like Bitcoin over cash or obviously any credit card transactions is I knew a guy who started a dispensary once that became legal in the state. The issue was, is it's legal in the state of Nevada, but it's still against the federal law. So what that meant, he had a very busy dispensary and he could not take credit card transactions, which means he had to take cash only. So on a daily basis, he had one of his employees walking around with some days 250 grand in his pocket to go walk it to the bank or drive it to the bank and deposit it as cash. Massive amounts of risk in something like that. And that was just in a, you know, a little one in Nevada. You get to some of the bigger ones in Colorado or California who have to do the same thing. That risk is hard to wrap your mind around that you just have people walking around with cash. They could take off. They could get robbed. You know? And they do. It happens. But there are so many different scenarios where that is massive loss. If Bitcoin was then or even now becomes more and more widely acceptable, they're in theory, that could actually be a much more secure way for them to complete transactions because they don't have to deal with the federal laws that the banks are held to. Yeah. And I've heard it makes it more accessible to other regions and other countries where I mean, they do have to have digital you know, access to things, but it may give access to other countries and other regions which typically don't have access to the country's currencies. Yeah. If there is a global currency, then Again, this could be debated until the, <laughs> <laughs> until the end of the world, but a global currency would change the global economy pretty positively. Yeah. And, and I've traveled to other countries and there's, you know, I'm paying somebody to transfer from one country's currency to another and someone's making some money on that. That's another instance where it would be preferable. I, my wife and I went on a honeymoon 10 years ago to another country and we had to wire money to the Airbnbs where we wanted to stay. I mean, they weren't Airbnbs then, but to the, the bed and breakfast where we wanted to stay. And when we got there and wire transfers back then through Swift codes and all that were like, you just sent the money and then you just kind of hoped. There was like, if you decided to change your mind, there was no getting it back. There was no record that they actually received it. And when we got to our second location during our honeymoon, they're like, yeah, no, never got your money. 
you can't stay here. And, and it got a little, little hairy there for a little while. So being able to send them Bitcoin and say, no, I've got confirmation that you actually received that money or canceling my transaction because you never did and not paying ridiculous amounts through for the SWIFT transfer method could be very handy for, as, as Derek said, through cross-border transactions for sure. Yeah. When I worked at Trust and Safety at eBay, if anybody trying to buy a product requested that the money be transferred through wire transfer, like Western Union, that was one of their number one red flags for fraud. Yeah. Because yeah, it doesn't come back. I think we can save it for next episode as again, we could talk about this subject for quite a while, but I would like to explore a little bit, maybe next episode on mining yeah. and what that all entails. Sure. But I, I think we save that for next time. I think you may have busted for some people, what is a common myth of Bitcoin being anonymous. It's basically the opposite <laughs> of, of, anonymous, of anonymous. Yeah. <laughs> I guess my follow-up on question as we tie this up around that is, so what do hackers do to try and maintain anonymity using Bitcoin? Because every account that says account 123 was sent five Bitcoins from account 345, and then anybody can just be like, well, who's account 123? And is this, they just have to try and anonymize the info behind that account? Or as you said, they kind of just pull it out from there? A lot of times they'll sit on it as one answer. It'll stay cold or dormant for a long time. Alternatively, if I illegally acquire 100 Bitcoins and then I make transactions with other people for one each, or I buy something that requires 14,000 Bitcoin and the 100 is only part of it, then I try to kind of distribute it throughout multiple purchases and multiple buys and sells in order to kind of filter it out a little bit more. It's still, you know, it's 100% traceable if someone wants to go through the painstaking process of doing so. But if I sell my illegal Bitcoin to Derek and then he does something with the transactions with you, then it becomes a little hard to figure out, all right, that was my wallet transferred a Bitcoin to his wallet. We know that was the first one, but then his wallet transferred three or four to you. Was that one of mine? So it gets a little harder to trace when you start doing multiple transactions, especially when, you're, when you change it from, you know, many to, to one or from one to many at that point. All right. I had one last question with blockchain back to the very basics is if you are a company and you deal in something in the supply chain area, again, we can go back to the food example and you want to get onto a blockchain. Is this a service that you pay for? Are there companies out there? Yeah. At a, at a high level, how does that work? Either you would attempt to do it yourself. So you would hire a bunch of developers to come in and create you know, a database that would work for you. But there are already a bunch of organizations out there that will come in and put your supply chain on a blockchain. Yeah, that's that's what their whole model is, that they come in and do that. In fact, there are, and we're gonna rabbit a hole here, but there are altcoins, they call them, which are cryptocurrencies that aren't Bitcoin, that that is their intended purpose. They are meant to be used to, <laughs> to tokenize. It's basically to fund your internal private blockchain. Yeah, exactly. you have a public coin, a cryptocurrency that people can use so that you can have your blockchain for your supply chain management, whatever. Well said. And I guess the last, I, I was thinking about it, the last analogy around cryptocurrency is it's, you know, we've all played some variation of a video game where you have to accumulate some variation of a resource. Yeah. It's basically people are willing to pay real money. Yeah. World of Warcraft gold sells for a lot of money, right? And you can buy and yeah. sell World of Warcraft gold. And there is absolutely nothing 
you know, tangible to that, to that virtual currency. It is absolutely just ethereal and digital, but people buy and sell it all day, every day. It just matters if people want it or not. If you look at crude oil, it's this disgusting soup that comes out of the earth. <laughs> Smells bad, tastes bad. At a very high level, it's, it's pretty nasty, but it's also what the world runs on just because we built our world to run on it. <laughs> so it can be anything. Yeah. yeah. Good, good example, Gary. Thank you. Yeah. Supply and demand and at its finest there. Yeah. <laughs> All right. Well, thank you, James, for giving us kind of a first step into understanding the wonderful complexities of blockchain and cryptocurrency. Definitely we'll do a follow-up episode to this one and get into, like Gary said, a little bit more into mining, NFTs, and all that fun stuff. Right. But yeah, it's a good place to stop, and we will catch all of you on the next one. Thanks, guys. Thank you, gentlemen. It's been fun. Thanks, James. Thanks, Derek. <laughs>